Hello, I'm Somi Aryan. I'm the founder of the Think Tank for Women in Business and Technology and the FemPIC platform with the mission of raising women's socioeconomic status. Our guest in today's podcast is Catherine Dignazio, an MIT professor and co-author of Data Feminism, a super interesting and eye-opening book about what I call the female data gap. Catherine and I dig into the cultural and historical biases that run deep when it comes to lack of data about women. I found it to be a super inspiring conversation and I hope that you will agree with me. So without further ado, let's dive right into the conversation with Catherine Dignazio. never thought of myself as a feminist uh, you know uh, it's one of those things that um, I think it's, it's often had a negative connotation um, sure. and uh, when I started Fempeak people started to uh, ask me so are you a feminist I was like uh, and no <laughs> you know <laughs> like, like, you know like uh, I, I, and and uh, I, I was like I've never read a feminist book in my life I don't know what you guys are talking about so that's yeah, when yeah. I started to actually read more and you know I, I was like basically the way I see it I as a woman um, uh, you know came across certain challenges uh, and I then noticed that those challenges were shared by other women and I wanted to do something about it that's how I see mm -hmm. it right um, and uh, only when people told me about uh, you know they started to ask me whether I was a feminist I was like uh, okay let me look into this so mm -hmm. one of the uh, you know I, I suppose like in the modern literature some of the the, um, the books that I, I looked at one of them was your book uh, because I was looking at it mostly through the lens of technology you know, mm -hmm. and, and Invisible Women, which really spoke to me. Um, but for example, the type of feminism, I suppose that, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people think about, I haven't read those kinds of literatures yet. Uh, and mm -hmm. I don't I don't know, look, okay. I tried to read, what's this lady, something, Bridget, something. Uh, oh, there's, look, there are a few famous, uh, let me see if I, Judith, Judith something. Judith um, Butler? Maybe this bottle, yes. Yeah, yeah. So okay, so I tried to read her book and I found it so hard to read. Uh, I just, I just found like I was like, I really struggled, right? I was like, why is this so difficult? Like, what, <laughs> yes. like why is her literature so hard? I just wanted to bang my head to the wall, you know. It's like it was just so difficult. Like, can you say this in a normal way? Like, like you know, like I've studied philosophy, right? Okay, I, yeah. I've studied Nietzsche and Kant. Yeah, yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and and if you're if 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 I'm struggling to understand Judith Butler, so um, so I just found that. Um, you know that, that it, it was maybe unnecessarily complicated um, so yeah. so those are the kind of uh, feminist li literature that I don't connect with and um, for me the thing that really spoke to me about your book was that when I was doing my research I kept coming to this concept of there seems to be a lack of flow of information to women and about women. So that's mm -hmm. where the data gap comes in, right? Like for example, why don't women raise more investment? Because they don't know certain things, they don't know certain people. So there, there is uh, information that is not being, uh, you know, conveyed uh, to women. So, so from that perspective, I really get the idea of 
you know, the, the connection between data and feminism. So I'd, mm -hmm. I'd be very interested to hear from your own point of view, uh, how you are looking at it. Sure. Yeah. And I would say that I don't think you're alone in, um, as a woman, not knowing kind of where you stand in relationship to that word of feminism, you know, like, I think that's really common. And I, I had the same thing myself, you know, we're not like necessarily um, born as feminists, because a kind of feminism is a kind of a political consciousness to come into. And you can only really have a political consciousness once you've started making these observations and saying, oh, uh, I think there's a pattern here. Let's try to find out what's going on, you know, and then starting to do that reading. Um, and so the other thing, so I had a similar thing where in um, school I had an advisor who I dearly loved and she told me I was doing feminist work and I was like no 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 this is just my work <laughs> you know <laughs> and then and that was kind of my entry point that I said that like it led me to consider oh maybe this is feminist and then I started on my own um, trajectory going down there but I remember her she's like a generation older um being really um surprised like she was part of probably part of the um she was like a feminist in like the 70s and 80s, early 90s, sort of, she was like surprised when she asked me about that word and I didn't immediately be like, yes, you know, I was like, I need to think about that. <laughs> you know? um, so I think that's a very common, um, I think that's a very common thing. But then at least for me, as I've gone down these different paths, um, the wonderful thing about feminist work, at least in my opinion, is that there's a rich, I don't know, I think of it as like a rich treasure trove of past work, which is not only about philosophy. I mean, I cherish Judith Butler's work, but it is dense. Really? And okay, it, that's interesting. I love it. I, I, was I, mean, worried about, like, I was worried about saying that. I, I thought you were going to judge me now. You're going to see like, what? No. <laughs> but, but the truth is like, I studied philosophy and I just don't get it. <laughs> totally. I mean, I think this is part of the, um, this is sort of what happens too in kind of academic I don't know, sort of like academic worlds and then practical worlds. And like, I, I feel like my own calling is to try to think about how do we connect like these beautiful ideas that I think come from academic theory, but like, how do we kind of like live those and translate those into action? And so that's kind of where I get excited. It's not necessarily, I'm not a person who likes the making of the theory. Like I'm not a Judith Butler person, but I love like kind of appreciating those ideas and then thinking about, well, okay, how do we make a computer system based on you know queer theory that she's proposing or something like that you know what I mean and like um so so, so can you yeah. tell me what is the gist of what she's saying because that is really uh it, it might help if you translate it <laughs> well so one of her key contributions and she has a lot so it's not like I can really <laughs> I would be like too scared to summarize her work. <laughs> so I'd probably be wrong, but, um, but no, one of her key contributions is um, helping us think about gender as um, a performance um, rather than, which actually I think feels very natural to us now. I actually, I think that's, but this is an idea she had like 30 years ago, but, um, but gender as being something that we perform and that we do it kind of every day, like every day that like a woman puts on a lipstick or like combs her hair or puts on earrings, she's sort of performing her gender. And at the same time, because she's like kind of opening this possibility up that is performative, she's also opening up the door to that, this idea that gender is, um, that we can change it, right? That we are not fixed genders in some kind of like essentialist way, like 
my body is a woman and it like will never change or something, but more that we can embody these kind of different gender identities, depending on the context, circumstances, and so on and so forth. And so like really thinking about um, gender as something that's a much more fluid, performative concept that we, um, that we kind of like repeat it um, versus something that's like innate and fixed in some way. Because often like the naive version of gender is just like, it's the same as sex and we're just all like in these particular bodies yeah. and like that's that or whatever. But for me, I like this idea of performativity because it opens up um, possibilities for transformation. Like tomorrow I could kind of be a different gender presentation, right? And I think like it kind of opens up the door to I think the huge variety and multiplicity of gender identities that we see being enacted today in a much more mainstream way, like I'm thinking about like trans and queer um, sort of gender identities, gender fluid. I have students now in my classes who are different genders on different days, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like opens up this possibility that um, this is also a way that one can be in their yeah, gender. Yeah, okay. No, well, that's that's fascinating. That is, that's, uh, that's really interesting. Uh, I, I guess from my perspective, I most of the time I don't necessarily wake up in the morning thinking about what what gender I am, right? Uh, you know, like I, the way I see it, I'm so focused on creating value to do and building something uh, that will uh, that will transform uh, life for many uh, many people, you know, uh, and yeah. you know, building an infrastructure and ecosystem. And those people happen to be called women, you know. But but sure. uh, yeah, but I I see exactly what you where where she's coming from now. I wish she had said it. Uh, I think you said it better than her because I like honestly, <laughs> I was like I started reading and then I was listening to to her books and I was like I I was about to bang my head to the wall. I was like, why do you <laughs> use so many difficult words? You know, even totally. Nietzsche didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally, totally. I mean, I think it's like academics often have a translational problem because they're speaking to like usually a very kind of niche field. And so then they need a boost <laughs> to translate. Yeah, them, yeah. So. I, the way I see it though, it's like, you know, the best ideas are, uh, uh, are explained as simple as possible, right? Uh, I do everything in my hand to try and you know, in, in uh, everything I can to try and simplify because I, I consider myself a philosopher. I studied philosophy of you know science and and political philosophy and yeah. uh, its application to technology. So um, uh, you know, and I, I did a comparative study of for my MPhil. I did a comparative. Uh, study of Nietzsche and Kant's philosophy of science and how it, it applies to their political philosophy. Um, I, I think that especially when you're talking about something like feminism and you know, so ideas that are so um, uh, prone to being misinterpreted, misinterpreted uh, it, it's so much more even important to try and simplify as much as possible, right? And, and uh, of course, you know the uh, the downside of simplifying sometimes is uh, that things can get taken out of context, and and you know it's sometimes I feel like like 
why is being a woman so hard, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, like exactly. why do I have to explain? It's kind of like, like you know, it's like, why do we have to have them peak? Like, why yeah. can't we just, yeah. uh, you know, why, why don't, why don't men have men peak? You know, exactly. <laughs> like, why do we even have to have that, right? Because, because when you have you ask that question on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's like you look at, uh, you know, only two percent of capital venture capital last year in America, for example, went to, uh, uh, went yeah. to women, right? Yeah, so then you awful. think, okay, we do need family because we need to have, we totally. need to create an infrastructure, right? To, to enable that. Um, so tell me now a little bit more about what you found through your research around data. You know, what is the importance of data and feminism in, in uh, your own words, like for people sure. who haven't read your book? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, for Lauren and I in writing the book, Data Feminism, what we were trying to do is kind of answer the broad question, like ask and answer the broad question, what would a feminist approach to data science look like? So kind of like, what do we, if we look across feminist work from the past 30 or 40 years, and again, that translational work of thinking about, well, you know, people like Judith Butler or Kimberly Crenshaw or you know, Patricia Hill Collins and so on, they were not writing about technology and data. They were, they were writing about sexism and racism and things like this. But if we kind of look at their ideas, how can we take some of those ideas and um, apply those to data? And the reason for that um, is very simple, in fact, um, is that data in today's day and age is is power, right? And so like feminist theory and feminist ideas are about power. They're about analyzing unequal power structures. And if we look at um, data right now, data is power in just like a really literal material way. Like if we look at like, who are the companies that are making the most money right now? These are the companies that have, have the ability the to- Yes, they like collect, store, analyze, deploy, maintain, and so on. Um, these massive data sets, and that's that is they're sort of like built into their um, business model. And so, um, you know, anytime we're talking about like lots and lots of money <laughs> being consolidated, there's a lot of power there, yeah. and we can see that made manifest in you know the ways that then the same kind of structures of oppression, racism, et cetera, kind of creep in. So like I I see that in the statistic you just said about the venture capital, you know, again, where there's there's these large concentrations of money and resources, the men concentrate, the women get pushed out, women of color in particular, but you know, um, also uh, lower class, et cetera. There's all sorts of intersectional things to think about, but um, this is like a manifestation of that. So sort of thinking about, well, how do we bring feminism into this as a way to have conversations about both the kind of all stages of the pipeline and even stuff that's not in the pipeline, like who's on the team, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we have conversations about funding, but we also have conversations about like what kinds of products are we even focused on and building? What do we think of as being meaningful offerings into the world? How does, you know, sexism and racism, et cetera, get um, permeate into our data sets and our data systems, you know, make for biases and discrimination and discriminatory effects down the line and so on. So, you know, kind of bringing feminism in is a way to start to open up those conversations and say, well, like, hey, how do we pay attention uh, to these things 
I don't know, we have a slide in our presentation that shows kind of the pipeline of a data system, right? And it's everything. We have to think about this everywhere. We have to think about it and who's funding the work, how it's getting funded, what are the kind of metrics of success that are being attached to it, on down to how we're getting the data, whose data is it, who, who are the data about, who's on the team, who's analyzing, who's, you know, building stuff, who's the software engineers, et cetera, um, on down to deployment into the world and possible harms and risks for um, various groups. So, so yeah, that's, that's, that's it in a nutshell. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I remember writing when I uh, first started Vampeak and I was doing a lot of research on this, I remember writing a piece about this, uh, saying that, you know, we've always said uh, knowledge is power, right? And this mm -hmm. is the, this is really the example, uh, like it's, this has never been more true than in 21st century. And totally. by knowledge, we mean information, we mean data, right? And, yeah. and uh, okay, so now the reason for the data gap is, I'm going to share with you what my observation has been through the research that I've done. And then I'd like to hear whether you, you think uh, I'm, I've gone wrong anywhere uh, and maybe you correct me in some way. But basically, the way I see it is that historically, you know, I've been trying to think about what, what happened historically. Why did women fall behind, right? At first, I was thinking it could be even from the time of hunter-gatherers where men would go out you know, and as a as a way of, you know, they would go out to hunt, they would have to create uh, alliances and they would have to collaborate, they would have to share data about weapon, building weapons and, and you know, uh, and then uh, they would have to create, uh, you know, like math in order to be able to count, you know, to um, uh, how to share, how to, you know, all those things, right? So I feel like, like a, network of um, or an infrastructure, a historical infrastructure and network has been built for men as a result of this having to collaborate to provide for their, um, you know, for the families. And just by the fact that women were the childbearing sex, thanks to uh, mother nature, some people call mother-in-law nature. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, I haven't heard that. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, uh, so, so women would have to stay home, right? And, and as a result of that, um, maybe uh, it all started very innocently. It's like, you know, let's not burden the woman uh, with all that information that, doesn't, that she doesn't need. You know, she's just like um, maybe pregnant, you know, like uh, breastfeeding, uh, bringing up the children. So let's just bring back the food, you know, like feed the family, etc. And then we, we go into the agricultural um, age, and this actually gets even more with, you know, with women not even going gathering anymore. It's like, you know, now it's, it's all about uh, the, the information to do with, uh, you know, the, the length of the, uh, the uh, land and, you know, the information to do with like the, um, the weather, the crops, you know, all those stuff, right? So women slowly just sort of fell behind because they 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 weren't um, uh, they weren't part of the conversation where these important decisions were being made right because of childbearing and and then of course uh, in the past it was like you wouldn't have one or two kids you would have lots because then uh, they they might die and you know so you would have to have more right so so they would spend a lot of time uh, actually uh, of their you know 
reproductive years uh, doing that. And then when they got older, then it was like, okay, looking after uh, the young of, of the rest of the family. So um, throughout the years, slowly women fell behind. Uh, so information was not passed on, right? Data was not passed on. But not only data was not passed on to women, but also data was not generated about women. That's another thing, right? So, so when, that's why when you look at, you know, for example, um, medicine, right? Like most, even to this day, for example, I just, um, I just ordered a kit for to do a test because I, I'm talking to my doctor. I'm like, uh, I want to try metformin because I've read about how metformin can help with anti-aging. But actually, mm. most of that, even that data, is mostly uh, like the, most of the. Uh, the research has been done on male mice, not yeah. even on females, right? Right. So, yeah. so, so, uh, when you go, when you are checking, like I've been researching on the data between, you know, the, the correlation between metformin and, and women's aging. Actually, there isn't enough, and most mm. of the data is on women, uh, on men. Even, uh, for example, uh, David Sinclair, who is the author of Lifespan, and uh, you know, I've I've heard so many of his interviews where he talks about how he he says that him and his father have been using metformin he never says my wife used it you mm. know and 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 he he's so i don't actually know right so like like yeah. literally the question of women like everything he talks about uh, anti-aging in his book there is literally the question of whether it applies to women has been unanswered and mm. and it's like literally it's like nobody asks nobody you know seems to and most of the interviews i see with him are are done by men yeah mm. so there's a gap in the flow of uh, data to women and then there is a gap in the generation of data about women okay. uh, and this is what i see as being potentially the historical reason i'd be very interested to hear if you if your research, does it show something else? Have I missed something there? Yeah, I think that's super interesting. The, well, come back to the health thing, because that's just such a pattern in, in like every study. But um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of the historical narrative that you just presented, I, I, I would just, it makes me a little worried because I just, I don't want us to be essentializing our bodies, um, like sort of childbearing and breastfeeding and raising kids and stuff as like a liability or something, you know what I mean? But it has been um, though, like it, like historically, it yeah, has been. I mean, now I mean, it may be different. Yeah, right, right, right. So potentially, yes, but I would sort of bound it not as being across all space and time, but looking really particularly at how sort of gender evolved in the in, in Europe and then in Europe's colonies. Um, and the reason I say this is because there's this great book by an indigenous feminist author and her name is uh, Leanne Beto-Simosaki Simpson. Um, and she's writing, you know, kind of from the, the perspective of an indigenous woman, she's from Canada. Um, and she frames um, the sort of gender binary as something that Europeans brought to North America um, and talks about how this like sort of strict division of labor 
the like kind of domestic nature of the woman is being like bound inside the home, like the, the home space is the woman's space and the outdoor space is the man's space. She talks about that as like a cultural import. And that was not a concept that existed for Native Americans in um, here in North America prior to that. And so, you know, it's sort of thinking about like, so I, th I think it may not be able to be generalized, but, or, but, or we could generalize it to the um, specifically the, the kind of European construction of gender. But how about Islam though, right? Look, because I'm originally from Iran and actually yeah. I would say that, look, it in Islam, for example, uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, which of course, you know, uh, Arabs in, invaded, uh, you know, Persia and, and you know, like a lot of places and, and they brought their uh, religion to those places, right? And uh, uh, it's very much like basically men own women, like like a mm. woman, right? Like, like for example, in my yeah. culture, uh, where I grew up, it's like you're either you're owned by your father, uh, and then your father gives you to your husband. Mm -hmm. If you if you don't have a father and a husband, even your younger brother has more authority over you even if you're older sister you even your younger brother your uncles they all have more authority over you than you have over yourself okay. you know that is that is the level of and this segregation like i remember uh, that when i was a kid we would go to uh, you know our aunties and and you know friends houses and the a lot of times the women they would uh, cook and then they would serve the food to the guests, right? There would be a, like a big spread and they would um, serve the food, but they wouldn't sit mm. with the guests. They would stay in the kitchen and they would mm -hmm. eat either the leftovers or like the, um, like my mother was not like that. Like when, whenever in, in our home, whenever she cooked, she would come and sit with everybody. That's again, look, data, right? Like why, yeah. why staying in the kitchen, you know, uh, they wouldn't be sitting at the at the spread with everybody else. So they sure. would be missing on information being shared, you know, by everybody, like get the grandfather and uncle, and they would be talking about important, you know, maybe the news or, you know, like politics or whatever. But no, the woman would be, sure, uh, you know. No, so I totally don't know if it's sense. European. I, uh, I think like no, a, a I lot of it that. definitely, yeah. a lot of it is definitely to do with Islam as well. You know, mm. like the, the Arab culture. I don't know yeah. as much about some of the other cultures, but for example, I have been to Japan and definitely there is so much of that still in, J in Japan. Like mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of, you know, even in the Japanese business culture, there's still yeah. quite a lot of oppression. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the way that I think this fits into what you were saying previously, too, sort of about the health studies and things like that is thinking about then like sort of who's in power in these situations, even in like these home situations. And, and then the who's in power in the home is then reproduced into who's in power in professional life. And then who's asking the research questions, who's undertaking the research studies, who's highly trained and gets highly educated to be able to do that. And then, you know, can we, when we like zoom up to the um, kind of present day, it's, we end up having this, uh, this particular culture where even in effect, um, women's bodies, which, 
did for quite some time, like if we think about like the politics of um, giving birth, for example, like who performed that work until really quite recently, at least in um, European North American spaces, it was really midwives who were doing that work. Um, and it was, it was kind of a, a lay person work and it wasn't a high status work. He didn't see like, people didn't see that you needed a, a doctor like who had been to medical school to have a baby, right? You, this is like a craft or a practice that uh, midwives were trained to do. Um, but then there's this great uh, second wave feminist book called, uh, oh gosh, what is it? Witches, oh man, like Witches, Midwives and Nurses or something like this. It's by oh, Barbara funny. Ehrenreich. It's a great little book. And this is definitely not a obtuse philosophy book. It's like a short pamphlet about the history of uh, midwifery and the gradual co-optation of midwifery by um, male uh, OBGYN doctors where, and it talks a little bit about how midwives were in fact much more scientific and much more data-driven than doctors because midwives had all this, um, you know, sort of field experience with giving birth. Um, they could go on what had worked previously in prior situations to address different problems. Whereas these like, quack OB, like men doctors had very little field experience. They had wacky theories about like how the female body actually worked and then like did, and then we're not data driven at all. So like, I, I totally recommend reading that book. Yeah, but, yeah I, mean, I but just I, found it. So it's Witches, Midwives and Nurses by Barbara uh, Erenrich. Yes, fantastic. That's exactly it. Um, and so, but it's, it's sort of like, and this is sort of what we see in data fields though too, it's sort of like as it, areas become more high status, like this is where the men then flock, um, congregate, and what ultimately ends up happening, they might not intend for to push out women, or they might intend to, I don't know, but like um, what ends up happening is that women get pushed out. And so I think we see that also in like sort of the data, AI, these sort of like very high status technology fields as well. Um, so it's sort of like the, that's where the money and the power is, the men are flocking there and it's, and it's pushing the women out. Um, and then the final thing I'll say like about the, the health studies, um, this is no, it, it, it aggravates me to no end. Um, and it's surprising to me that it's, it's only very recently, for example, in the United States that our National Institute of Health finally, like in the past 10 years only, has mandated that research subjects need to use um, sort of equal uh, research studies need to use equal male and female uh, participants, even if we're talking about like mice or uh, animals or whatever, because previously, and this again goes back to the like male quack doctor thing, they um, excluded women and, uh, and female animals from research studies um, if, because of menstruation. So I don't know if you know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's like um, ignoring the fact completely that men also have monthly hormonal cycles, <laughs> but, like, um, but like thinking that like, oh, we, you know, menstruation is this like mysterious variable <laughs> that's going to swell well, our research or whatever. So. I mean, you think about the, there's definitely also a, uh, a religious, I think, I think there's definitely a religious bias there too. And I, I've mentioned this in previous uh, interviews. Again, uh, when I was uh, 13, I got my period and my mom said that when you, because I lived in Iran until two, I was 23. Um, hmm. So uh, my mom said that um, 
and of course, you know, in Iran, uh, you know, if I became an, that's when I became an atheist, essentially, officially, right? So, um, and in Iran, you couldn't say that. Basically, growing up in Iran, uh, it's a Muslim country, right? So as you're growing up, they tell you that you are a Muslim, even if you, it's not like they say you are born a Muslim, right? Yeah. And, I, and I, I always questioned, I was like, how can I be born with a religion? Mm -hmm. Because a yeah. religion is a thought, right? It's, it's a belief system. I cannot be born with a belief system. A belief system is something that you adopt later, right? Mm. So anyway, I, I started um, you know, questioning all those things since a young age. And then when I, when I got my period, my mom said that uh, women can't go into the mosque. They can't pray. Mm. You can, like you, not in private, not... You cannot go to the mosque, but you also in private, you can't say prayers wow. and uh, you can't fast, right? So now the fasting thing, okay, I get because um, like you could say that your body is losing nutrients, whatever. But the, I was like, why can't I go to the mosque? She said, because you are unclean. Yeah. I'm like, I, I wash myself, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, yeah. no, like you're angry. And, and, yeah. um, and then uh, I was like, okay, I can't go to the mosque. Why can't I say prayers? What kind of a God is it that would say half of my population, right? Like half of my creatures uh, cannot say prayers to me for a quarter yeah. of each month. Yeah. <laughs> like if, I was like, if you do the math, this yeah. God is, is missing out on a lot of prayers. That's so true. Right? And that's a, it's a great point to do the math because it'd be like a quarter of all women's lifetimes. Yeah, basically. like, like imagine, so. I thought that God likes to be prayed to. That's a lot of prayer missing, right? <laughs> So I'm sure so your mom loved that question. <laughs> uh, no, uh, well, actually, we ended up like, you know, we, we, we are still not very close. You know, we, we never really saw, saw eye to eye. And yeah, um, and uh, I, th I think when you look at the, so when we look at, you know, the health situation, right, where we are talking about the data, like that is already, even it, it really seems like it, it, it's like menstruation is this, incredibly you know strange thing that that you can't talk about and then yeah. and then it's like menopause as well right and then of yeah. course childbirth you know all, all those things right so so um it does it does really uh, it all adds up and and then all of a sudden we are in this situation okay so going back to what we were talking about you were saying that this is a European phenomenon. Let's say it's an Asian European phenomenon, mm -hmm. you know, because it seems that I think it's a, I think it's very much, it starts with mono, uh, uh, what to say, say monotheism. Yeah, mono, mm -hmm. yeah, monotheistic religions, you know, because mm -hmm. they all, mm -hmm. uh, Abrahamic religions, mm -hmm. right? They, they all seem to, like, for example, in Persia, before Arabs invaded Iran, women, had uh at, at least that's what uh, you know our, our history says that women had rights women had even mm. uh they had maternity you know rights and and you know we had women who were leading uh you know armies and and all that wow. stuff right so, yeah. so all of those things 
um, you know, did exist. I mean, I don't know to what degree. And I think that sure. people in retrospect try to maybe make it look more than it, what it was. I, I don't, I can't say for sure, but but it does seem to be the, uh, a phenomenon that very much started with the monotheistic um, religions. Um, yeah. I, I, so, uh, so how do we, okay, now the question is, okay, this is where we are right now. How do we overcome that, right? And with Fempeak, what I wanted to try and uh, look at was like, how do we overcome that? And, and I think that this um, institution of information has been mm -hmm. created for uh, our male counterparts, uh, you know, through uh, millennia and centuries. Um, uh, and that same infrastructure doesn't exist for women. And yeah. since it doesn't exist for women, uh, if we wait for it to organically happen, it's not going to happen. So yeah. what we need to do is we need to manufacture it. And that's mm -hmm. where, you know, the likes of MP coming in place. You know, there, there are um, other, many other really amazing, excellent female networks, right? So that's where these come in. Uh, but we are still far from being able to close that gap. And what really worries me is that in 21st century, we are merging with technology, uh, but women aren't part of the conversation where that's happening. So it'd yeah. be interesting to hear from your point of view, what can we do about it? Sure. No, I think that's, um, well, I think the, the work that you're describing is fantastic. And so I think the, the work to create um, the way that I see it, and I'm new to the Fempeak concept, but from what I understand of it is sort of like um, creating networks and infrastructures um, for women to help women, essentially. So I think that that, the, that in itself is a fantastic thing. The um, It's a larger scale than what, but something similar that I've done is uh, we've run these uh, feminist hackathons, actually, at the MIT Media Lab. So. Um, they're called, uh, they, they were mainly about uh, breastfeeding and postpartum care, um, which is, that's kind of how I got to that midwives book. So I've done a lot of work in that space. Um, but the hackathons were, were, there were a couple of them and they were called the Make the Breast Pump Not Suck Hackathon. And for the same reason of like breastfeeding, um, could it, I mean, it's like possibly the most natural thing in the world. It's like you have a baby and you feed them with your breasts, you know what I mean? But it's so... Um, it's so stigmatized. Um, it's little research. It's highly under-researched. And at least here in the U.S. context, there's this there's a super polarizing thing of like breast or bottle um, sort of feeding, and people are very judgy about it or whatever. Um, and so, so there's like kind of divisions even within kind of like women, parents, mothers, etc. themselves. And so it's an attempt to kind of like go directly into that stigmatized space celebrate this capability and but also be kind of multiple about it and say like let's let's make breast pumps better let's make postpartum care better let's support people who want to breastfeed let's support people who want to do bottles let's support people who are exclusive pumpers because that's now a whole thing where people can't breastfeed their kids but they can pump milk and so that's that's how they feed them so great um but um so sort of through the creation and for us those were 
temporary spaces. You know, they're kind of like these temporary, um, kind of beautiful, joyous spaces where you did not feel ashamed of breastfeeding or you didn't feel ashamed of any choice that you had ever made about feeding your baby. <laughs> you just felt good. <laughs> and you could all, we could all be together and be creative and be innovative and also ask challenging questions of like, why doesn't this corporate workplace support this with more nursing spaces? Why doesn't this federal leave policy give us maternity leave in the United States and so on. Um, and so I, I see kind of resonance with what Femme Peak is doing in the sense of like, we do need these kinds of spaces because these are like infrastructure um, places where uh, women can come and feel welcomed, where we can destigmatize a lot of the things that we are made to feel ashamed of, or just about that often have to do with our bodies, <laughs> you know, um, where we can commune with each other and share our own information and say like, oh, I've experienced that as well, right? Um, oh, that might be a structural problem. <laughs> um, so I think that stuff is amazing. Um, and so it's almost like a form of consciousness raising, which is something that a lot of groups in like the 60s talked about consciousness raising, but it's consciousness raising, you know, information sharing and um, kind of let's do something together, uh, you know, take collective action. Um, at the same time, I think there's still, the, the, the problem is so big that we also have to think about like, what are the, um, what are the larger structural solutions? And that's where I come back to things like policy change. So like in that work on breastfeeding specifically, um, I, you know, we, we really boosted and tried to encourage everyone who was like, there, there were several pump companies that like came out of the hackathons. We worked with existing pump companies and I'm happy to have done that. But ultimately I think what will help uh, women and parents breastfeeding in the US is paid family leave policy when you have a baby. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's the, that's the scaled solution to, to kind of support this. Um, and other things are good interim solutions and the hackathons are a good interim solution and these spaces we make for each other, those are so important. But then like, ultimately I, for me, it becomes about policy because like, how do you mandate something at scale where people are not always going to opt into it? You know what I mean? Like, you know, not every corporation is going to be like, yeah, I'm on board and I'm definitely making more nursing spaces and I'm going to give all my employees six months of paid maternity leave. Like the, the corporations are not all going to do that. Right. Um, no. So. But what's your opinion on um, anarchism? Because, you know, I, I see myself as more of an anarchist. I, I've, uh, you know, probably because I come from Iran, I was against the government, you know, uh, and I grew up with a, a mistrust of governments and and a sense of I can never rely on any institution, uh, mm. you know, even big corporations to do anything positive for me. Um, yeah. And with Fempeak, uh, so the awareness raising is only one part of it. So we are building a, you know, a few different uh, hubs that are coming in a few years. So for example, uh, this year we are building the knowledge hub, next year we will build the career hub, the year after we'll be uh, building a femtrade marketplace, which is hmm. where uh, we are, we're encouraging companies to buy from companies that have female founders. Um, hmm. and, uh, and then, uh, the year after that, we'll be building a, uh, uh, a you know, a, a, an investment network. So 
the way I see it is if you uh, enable, look, look, say, for example, I came here from Iran, uh, paid for my own education, you know, I came here with, with one suitcase, no family whatsoever, you know, worked for a very long time, built, you know, it took me 11 years to become a British citizen, then I uh, started my own business, and, and now this is where I am. Uh, to this date, I haven't got a penny from the government. Now we are applying for a grant, but whether we will get or not, you know, even if we do get that at one point, uh, you know, we have already applied, uh, you know, a couple of times, we, like we are trying again. But to this date, I haven't had a penny from uh, help from any government, any kind of institutions like that, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and this is where I am. Yes, I have had to make sacrifices. For example, I decided not to have children, not decided, you know, that sure. uh, I had to make it a choice between family and relationship, uh, sorry, family and, and uh, you know, career. Um, sure. But that said, um, I, I just hope, and I, uh, maybe more than hope, I, I, I really believe that if women learn, um, you know, if, if they really take an active stance towards technology and learn finance and technology, especially, you know, leadership, entrepreneurship, you know, the things that we've got, we've got six pillars on, on FEMPIC that we work on, these are the things we work on, and, mm -hmm. and they uh, take their own health in their hand, right, uh, yeah. you know, if they do these things, they can, like, we will create a whole new way of tackling these problems, if we wait for governments, if we wait for institutions, we'll be waiting for a very long time. Totally. No, I, I totally agree with that. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, I think we cannot, um, that's, to me, that's like the long game, you know, yes. like the, the policy change is the long game. And like, ultimately, like, that's the, in a way, like the, the scaling thing where we like really work towards policies and sort of structures and institutions that truly but remember support women and such. That governments are are losing their relevance like you look at you know look at this pandemic you know and look at you know what what's happening in the technology space with the cryptocurrency you know with like mm -hmm. blockchain you know like governments are losing their relevance they're they're struggling they're trying to create inflation just to to stay you know they're printing money they're trying to create in, inflation ju just to stay relevant um mm. I think our generation, you know, I always say millennials, we are the, I think the most important, um, I don't mean it in a big headed way, I mean like the most crucial, uh, you know, uh, point in history uh, as the link between the pre-digital and post-digital. I mean, hmm. do you really see the government of Biden being even relevant to, like, say, the Gen Z? You know, I mean, mm. like, like, and, and the, the generations after that. I mean, I think so, and I hope so, in the sense that of, you know, our state, like this, meaning in the United States, is like so large that like there needs to be some kind of management of it. <laughs> like, of course, you of know, course. you know what I'm saying. Um, I will say that like the the pat the prior administration to Biden though. Um, gave myself and a lot of people, I think, a huge pause because there was this, like, maniac in charge. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, so that does, I mean, I think there was, like, a lot of faith was eroded in institutions. Like, if you have a person at the head of this institution that previously had 
sort of trusted like it didn't always do the right thing but it basically functioned and um but then all of a sudden it, it did seem like it's about to run off the rails you know um so I, I completely understand the um mistrust of government and yet you know like I feel like there's an investment to be made in that versus like what's the alternative you know what I mean like the alternative like uh, there, there has to be some kind of governance alternative and I don't know like what that would look like basically. Um, but I guess I would say that like that doesn't necessarily apply to um, all governments everywhere because there's certainly, you know, there are leaders installed and our own leader was like this just one leader ago <laughs> who you're like, I don't want to invest in that as an institution, yeah. like, a, like a government that's like systematically like exploiting racial and class divisions, uh, you know, systematically gutting public institutions um, for wealth of billionaires. Like that's, that's, that's not the kind of sort of um, policy uh, institution that I want to be working with either. So I think there's some um, thinking to be done there about yeah what are the the longer term structural solutions to these things and which are the institutions that are going to provide them you know yeah okay so uh, okay so to bring the conversation it's been really fascinating talking to you but to bring the conversation to an end what where do you see the role of academia and and you know uh, education um, because, you know, especially in our generation and the younger generation, I keep putting myself with millennials. I'm like an older millennial. Okay. <laughs> but like, uh, you know, but, but like, uh, I don't look it. So let's just. No, you on. definitely. Anti-aging. <laughs> Whatever yeah. anti-aging you're doing is working. <laughs> it's working. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yeah. Uh, so you know our generation but also the younger uh, millennials and the and the uh, younger you know and and the gen zers you know like there's increasingly a sense of why should i uh, go to university why should i you know like especially you know like one of the questions that comes up quite a lot especially when in tech it's like should i just do a boot camp or should i go and get a university degree you know yeah. um and uh, there was a time, I would say that for me, definitely, uh, it had a lot of value, uh, especially my MPhil degree. I was doing a PhD, I ran out of money, I had to hand in my thesis and get a, uh, an MPhil because mm. I was an overseas student, so I couldn't get a student loan or anything like that. So, oh. um, so I had to do that. But, um, you know, the thing that it taught me was learning how to learn. Um, mm -hmm. Today, I, I don't know... Uh, I, I feel like the opportunity is there, like if you wanted to, the, the information is there, but I don't feel that the social media culture is less necessarily uh, encouraging that. So um, where do you see this data gap going? Is the data gap increasing? Is it decreasing? Where does academia fall in? That would be your last uh, question. Sure, yeah, that's a big one. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting you're talking about that because my sister is a younger millennial and like we made very different choices. I'm, I'm a person who always loved school, basically, so it's good that I've ended up in academia probably. Um, and I love studying all sorts of things, like random things, you know, like Russian literature, whatever it might be. Like it, it was all interesting for me. And then but my sister had a very different experience where she um, she actually got a full ride scholarship uh, to a really great school here. And um, 
she dropped out and she was like, I, I want to be a nurse. Like I want to do something practical. She could not understand like why she should be studying Russian literature or the equivalent basically in, in this uh, liberal arts institution. Um, and so she dropped out and she ultimately, she did go to nursing school and like she's a nurse now and she's now gonna get her like midwife certification and stuff. Um, but it was um, an orientation towards the much more I don't know, I guess we're saying like in the world rather than- Yeah, I, I think sometimes heads. I think about it, like, you know, the, I think sometimes I, like, I, I, sometimes I feel like, did I waste a lot of my years? Like I spent 21 years in education. I ended up with two, with two masters, right? And I, and I just think like, I wish I, sometimes I wish I, I had gone into business sooner, but on the other hand, I couldn't because I, I came here with a student visa. So I had to mm. go through that process, right? Um, but more and more people uh, our age and younger are starting to question this thing of like should I uh, go like what's the point right and is it is it is it gonna help when it comes to women is it gonna help close that data gap it, or is generally the data gap um, increasing you know right. to me my experience with academia has been that the snobbery is still there the yeah. you know the um like what would it take for me as a philosopher to be taken as seriously as say nick bostrom ever right yeah so yeah. so then this is one of the or, or let's say for example you know you all know harari like right i i wrote a four and a half thousand really in a word in, in depth uh article about um, COVID-19 and you know mm -hmm. its impact on philosophy and technology uh, and and uh, sorry not philosophy on economy and society it, the, it became like a really big thing on LinkedIn I, I got incredible amount of feedback on it we sent it to BBC they didn't even look at this oh this uh, you all know Harari has already like covered that right like we oh. right like they didn't even look at it and um and that was like it went through to bbc through somebody that was like quite high up and and they yeah. uh, uh, recommended and no oh no we have you've all we've got it you've all, you've you've all has it right and 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 um it, so the way i see it for for people like me the only way to be taken seriously you know i, I suppose one way is to go into academia you know uh, and and to try to like really like fight your way or you just build your own community and, mm -hmm. and say you know fuck the rest of it I'm just gonna do my own thing right like build yeah. your own community and build it to a point that that it, it's gonna make the impact mm -hmm. that you know maybe bigger or in a different way you know that totally. uh, than you would have otherwise Totally. And I mean, like I said, I, I, I totally support that because I think the, you know, academia is not, um, academia is not a space that's free of racism and sexism and all the isms, you know what I mean? Like the, all of those things exist within these walls, just as they do everywhere else. And, and that same, those same gatekeeping structures, those same sort of like who gets taken seriously, all of that is very real. And in, in fact, like academia as an institution is pretty, very hierarchical, very rigid, you know? So it's, it's, it's you know, like I, I can totally see why going and building your own thing and making a big impact. I think that is like a, 
wonderful and I would say feminist actually strategy. Okay, like, that's interesting. Screw you guys. I'm doing this on my own. And I'm I'm gonna make waves and just leave you in the dust. And so I think that um I think that's totally legit. Like is that the the right choice for everybody? Maybe not. I don't know. Like people have to make yeah. their own people have to make their own ways. Um, you know, I'm in I in academia, women, so like, yeah, mm, I think I there's think some women, relevance to education still. Yes. Right? I, 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 hope, I hope. No, no, there is, there is definitely, right, there's definitely. There is definitely. And look, and look, you're at MIT, you know, and one of our shepanis is uh, Professor Sarah Seeger. And uh, the reason why she's there is because she's a professor at, at MIT, right? And, and otherwise, you know, that, like that was one of the main attractions, right? Uh, so definitely uh, there is. I, I just think like they didn't let me in. So like, I, like they didn't, you know, I, it was so hard. So maybe I wasn't good enough in their eyes, right? But I don't give a shit. I, I'm gonna yeah. build my own thing, right? I'm gonna do my own exactly. thing. Um, yeah. And the way I see it is that um, you're right. Maybe that is a feminist thing, but yeah, it's a rebellious thing, right? But um, mm -hmm. the way I see it, women need to create new institutions. They need Absolutely. to build their own thing. You know, I'll, I'll give you an example of uh, women's football, right? Like uh, there's this lady, I can't remember her name, who is now, uh, uh, who is uh, really campaigning for women. Women footballers should be paid as much as men. The truth is that even women will not sit and watch you know, like, okay, some people may, but but not to the same degree that men do, right? It's a mm -hmm. women's football is not bringing in as many viewers. What we need is rather than uh, making look, I mean, this is just my opinion, right? And I, and I know that everybody is, you know, like, I'm sure this is going to upset some people. But the way I see it, why do we need necessarily for women to play football and to expect that the same level of treatment and why can't we create a whole new sport that is mostly women friendly right that is like yeah. oh, women like is something that's like you know something that women would sit and watch right like mm -hmm. there there's like three and a half billion of us like more than three and a half billion of us right why wouldn't yeah. you create a whole new sport that female yeah audiences and then maybe when as they sit and watch then their partners and their brothers and fathers would sit and watch too but but yeah. the way it happens with football is that it's a it's been designed by men it's a very much of a, a sport that is like like I don't really enjoy it like I, I used right. to go to to the stadium with my partner and I was like and sometimes I used to say to him like can we go to something else for a change <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, yeah, exactly. you know? Like, I, I appreciate totally. you have a season ticket and it's I really appreciate it. it's such a nice experience but like can we sometimes go to something else you know? <laughs> right so, totally. so why can't we create our own things absolutely <laughs> absolutely I'm down with that I know I think it's great I think I think we should be creating our own things and we should have our own spaces and we should um have these I mean the reason I see it as a feminist act is because it's a refusal to participate in these gatekeeping sort of uh sexist male-dominated institutions and just saying okay you do that and i'm gonna go over here and build this new world with the so is that what you say this is that the, the foundation of what feminism is because if that is it is then uh yeah that's what i do right like yeah. I, I just call it rebellion you know yeah yeah <laughs> and i'm not yeah. and i'm not rebelling for the sake of rebelling 
I'm rebelling yeah. because there are things that I want to experience that I've been held back from. And, exactly. And therefore I'm going to, uh, you know, like I couldn't get a job in British TV, even though mm. I worked for five years as a TV pro- producer in a Persian language uh, TV channel in the, U- uh, in the UK, in London. Uh, right. Yeah. But, but because the TV channel that I've worked in was not BBC, you know, and then yeah. I didn't do my, um, you know, like uh, going up the ladder through BBC and and like right. you know the the traditional uh, British you know uh, and that was the days where uh, diversity was not on uh, you know in vogue yet you know right. it, like now yeah, it's yeah. in vogue right but that was the day when it wasn't and and I couldn't get a job I just couldn't they wouldn't give me, like they wouldn't give me yeah. a a second look right so yeah. then I, I started my own business and then I did my own thing right yeah. No, I think I, I totally think it's feminist. Um, absolutely, 100%. <laughs> no, man. The, the problem is if I say that word, like people are going to... Uh, yeah, you don't have to say it or claim it at all, even. I just I just know that it is. <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? When like, people say, are I, you a feminist? I'm like, no. no. Yeah. I, I mean, I think because there's also... I also think it's a feminist move to like deploy feminism strategically when it's useful and like not when it's not useful I, I don't know like I think it's, it's there's a lot of um sort of strategy as you try to interrupt the patriarchy <laughs> so awesome awesome it was really so much fun talking to you I really enjoyed great. it um, great talking it is, with you so what's what what's next for you you've got data feminism do you have another book uh, in the pipeline I do. It'll probably be a little while before it's out, but um, what I've been doing since then, we um, wrote in Data Feminism about Maria Salguero, who's an activist in Mexico, and she collects data about feminicides. Yeah, Yeah, so these are gender-based killings of women and girls, and we were really... um, you know, we talk about that example and we talk about her work as this counter data collection, basically kind of using data to challenge the status quo and hold governments accountable and so on. Um, and so my next book is actually about this phenomenon. So I realized that she's not the only person doing that work. In fact, across Latin America, in the US, Canada, and then actually now it turns out in many places there are groups, individuals, um, sometimes nonprofits, sometimes they're activists, um, collecting these information, usually from scanning news media articles. So we've been interviewing them and um, folks in my lab and I have been interviewing them and then we've been building some AI driven tools to help streamline their work because they're usually doing this work uh, very manually, uh, scanning news reports for these violent deaths. And uh, as you can imagine, it's very, um, traumatic uh, labor because you're reading about these horrible stories basically. Um, so that's it's, it's sort of the topic of the next book is about it's about data feminism but it's about how specifically folks who are working on this issue are using counter data to sort of challenge the status quo. Amazing. Fantastic. I'll be sure to um, mention, you know, put all the data about your current book. I have read it. I really uh, encourage people to read it. I mean, I've listened to it. Uh, I, sure. I really encourage everybody to uh, to dig in and, and like really uh, get into it. Um, one, uh, I know I said one last thing several times, but very, very last thing. One of the things you mentioned in the book, which was very interesting to me, was that you say that feminism also includes the inclusion of other 
whether it's genders, whether it's like any other form of um, anybody who is left out, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I thought that was really fascinating because sometimes uh, when we do the outreach, you know, in, inviting people to join Pampeak, um, sometimes we get a, a reply that I'm not a woman. Haven't you seen my profile? You know, I'm a, a non-binary or I'm transgender. <clears throat> and um, they probably haven't heard your book, so they need to read it. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I mean, I, I think uh, truly feminism is, at Bell Hooks said this, feminism is for everyone. Um, and especially if we look at intersectional feminism, which is sort of Crenshaw's term for this is like, we can't only explain inequality just by looking at sexism, right? Like we really have to look at all the isms um, and look at their intersections um, and build a world that is inclusive along those intersectional lines of difference. So yeah, totally with you there. Amazing. I'll be sure to keep up with your work and um, I'm gonna uh, follow you on social media and, and look forward to seeing what you do next. Great. Thank awesome. you so much. Thank Thanks. You. Good luck Thanks with you. everything. Look Thank forward you. to following the Fempeak movement as well. And we <laughs> so. will definitely have you again. And yes, we'll catch up. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Catherine D'Ignazio. Be sure to check out the excellent book that she has co-authored called Data Feminism. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or any other one of your favorite podcast channels. And don't forget to give it a five-star rating and write a review. You can also find the full video of these conversations on my YouTube channel. And connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, or Clubhouse at Somi Aryan. Finally, if you're not yet a member of Fempeak, head over to fempeak.ai, register and join a community that actively supports women's professional growth.